Levin, once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Steve Hartlett, phoning it in. Steve, what's going on, man? <laughs> phoning it in because it's an awful, rainy, nasty night out there tonight. Plus, we're going to be doing some podcasting at your place, in your studio, a little later in the week. So yeah. I just thought I'd be lazy tonight and stay home. But, uh, man, great to be here with you. Great to be podcasting again. I always love it. Yeah, man, it's exciting. And you're right. We are um, we are literally going to be marathoning it this week. Um, this week, yeah. Yeah, we have... Uh, we have some great podcasts that we're going to be uh, great podcasts that we're actually going to be doing on Thursday. I'm not going to say anything about it because I want this to be a nice surprise. Um, Steve, when we're done with this, I plan on editing it and dropping it tonight. It may or may not be a full 45 minutes. That is the mm-hmm. goal that we always aim for, but we have mm-hmm. another one coming up on Thursday. And then we are doing what we do every year. Uh, this is no surprise. Greg and I let this out of the bag years ago. That um, we're going to be pre-recording all of our Christmas podcasts, uh, so that way we can take a nice little break and have all those ready to go during the Christmas season. Uh, I know that you know things um, to a certain extent are going to ramp up for you pastorally as well as uh, family-wise, um, and so you know it's just nice not to uh, not to have to commit to one more thing in December. Absolutely. So we're going to be we're going to be in your studio this coming Saturday. Yes. Uh, this is a Tuesday night. So this coming Saturday, we'll be there at six a.m. Yes. And probably podcast our butts off till around noon or something. That is the plan, and we have um, you know great uh, surprise with uh, Greg joining us again. So Greg will yeah. be on our Christmas podcast. That is sweet. Uh, special for, uh, for us, uh, Steve, we love having Greg on, so it'll be good to have him back and uh, special for our listeners. You know, I know that, uh, they miss him and so it'll be good to hear from him again. Um, so before we, uh, before we dive in, you know, uh, we, we kind of jokingly talked about, uh, talk about, um, Mission Aware on here. Not jokingly, they are our sponsor. We do promote them. Um, but, you know, we, we jokingly talked about, you know, buying your T-shirt or, you know, your great gift for Halloween. And then, you know, now Halloween's done. So, hey, buy your T-shirt, buy your mug, buy your journal for Christmas. <laughs> Christmas now, yeah. Um, and then New Year's. And that's then right. Easter and, that's right. Know. Uh, but in all seriousness, you know, Mission Aware has some great products. They're not just they're not just great durable products, but they're also great looking products. These aren't like the T-shirts of old, where you know you had the Lord's Gym and you know all that stuff. I mean, these are actually high quality T-shirts. You can, to a certain extent, customize them yourself. Put Bible verses on them if you'd like, or even you know great quotes or messages on there if you are. Uh, fan, you know, we keep me- mentioning the post Tenon Brass Lux After Darkness Light T-shirt, um, and the one I have has the um, verse from Peter on there that he has brought us out of this darkness and into His marvelous light. I put that one on um, my T-shirt, but you can customize the back of it if you've got a great verse from the Reformation that you want, and I mean a great quote from the Reformation that you want on there, you can put that on there. Um, not just t-shirts though, moleskin journals. I found more and more that I am, uh, Steve, you know, we did our podcast, uh, I don't know, I guess it was about a month ago now on Bible study and, you know, studying the Bible for all it's worth. And that actually really inspired me to pull out my hard, uh, my, my, hard Bible, my, my real Bible, not my e-Bible, the paper Um, version, the paper Uh version. And so, you know, I have been, 
Um, you know, I've been back in that. I've been taking notes again. And so, you know, having a nice moleskin journal to be able to, you know, write things down in, take notes on has, um, is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I have several people in my family who I'm already starting to think about. Oh, what would this person like for uh, for Christmas? And I have uh, one person that I am hoping that this will work out for. I'd love to be able to get him. The uh, they have the entire Book of Romans on this three foot poster that you can get and can be hung up on the wall. Not only do they have it in English, but they also have it in Greek. Um, oh, that is too cool. I want the Greek one. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's what I'm going to be looking at. Um, and I think that would be perfect. I have uh, someone in mind for that, but great products, great gifts. I can't think of anyone who wouldn't love to have something from Mission Aware. And, you know, these go to 11 is, you know, such an iconic um, symbol it's such, uh, you know, you have these people, it's a cult following, you know, from this is Spinal Tap. And so our logo, I think, is just perfect, uh, which would make a great gift, uh, not only for somebody who enjoys listening to this podcast, uh, a believer friend of yours, but even an unbeliever friend who, you know, just enjoys uh, these, this, uh, this is Spinal Tap and would enjoy that reference. Yeah, when I, you know, I mention to people here and there, because I have a reason to, that I'm part of a podcast. And they always want to know what's the name of it. And when I tell them, I'd say 60% say, oh, is that from Spinal Tap? Yep, yep. And so that is, yep. So um, awesome. So check out Mission Aware for, uh, you know, great Christmas products. I'm going to be talking with Jeff soon about um, getting us some uh, Christmas uh, discounts going on through the holiday season. So uh, listen up for that. So Steve, switching gears. I am super excited about today's topic because uh, we have uh, talked about this on and off, but we finally actually got a full listener request for this. This is from Tyler Noblet, I believe it is. Uh, shout out to you. Thanks so much for this question. Uh, Tyler writes in, I'm not sure if you could make a full topic about this, but I really like when Nathan talks about the idea of the mythological encountering Christ. If possible, I'd like to hear more on that because I think I understand where you were going and I like the idea. I have also read C.S. Lewis on the idea of how myth became fact in Christ. It is always something that has fascinated me and I'd be it, it'd be great to expand on it. I really like podcasts. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, um, Tyler. We really appreciate the email. Um, you know, We love it when people uh, give us suggestions. Um, Steve and I... Uh, we'll rack our brains for topics and, you know, great fallback topics that we always keep going back to uh, is liberty, freedom in Christ. Um, I think, you know, we touch on that in every single podcast because it is so, it is so fundamental to the Christian faith. And um, by, by the way, Nathan is being very generous here. <laughs> he said, we rack our brains. It really means Nathan racks his brain and Steve says, yeah, okay. All right. That sounds good. That's the truth. How it really works. A uh, little, ins- little behind the curtain on the podcast. <laughs> But um, this is actually a topic that I really love, and I love the concept and idea of it. And it was actually um, 86 years ago on September 20th of this year when Tolkien first convinced Lewis um, that Christ is the true myth. Um, And what that really refers to is the idea that all throughout history – 
uh, leading up to Christ, and even after Christ, you have these shadows of this figure who comes down to save humanity, who has a death experience or a near-death experience, comes back from that and reigns victorious over their foe. Um, and this is an argument that Tolkien used when he was uh, friends uh, with a young C.S. Lewis. Actually, they were both younger at the time, um, but they were both uh, these professors um, you know, at, uh, at university and they would get together. And at that point, Lewis thought that, um, Christians were just mindless buffoons. Um, he really didn't hmm. like them. He was convinced that God was not real. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his background and history on that too. But now, do you um, remember, did the yeah. two of them first meet in connection with that group called the Inklings? No. They would get together and read each other's, oh, that came later? That came later. That actually was born out of, uh, Tolkien, um, in his conversion of Lewis to Christianity. Um, so yeah, they actually, um, so uh, yeah, let's, I mean, let's go ahead and we'll start from the beginning. I mean, Lewis actually grew up in a Christian home of sorts. His mother was, um, I believe a devout Anglican. Um, his father was, uh, you know, uh, member of the church. Um, but his mother who he loved very much, uh, died suddenly. And um, his father really didn't know how to deal with that death. So he ended up uh, sending Lewis away to a boarding school, um, which was basically an absolutely horrible experience for him. Um, You know, it kind of drove him further into um, some bitterness and hatred, uh, really, you know, kind of form uh, cementing some seeds in him about, you know, uh, is Christ real? That type of thing. And then when he was ready to move on into his, uh, I would say his high school experience, if you will, he uh, was uh, basically went to a person, went to a private tutor. You know, at that time, uh, if your family could afford it, you could go and to a private tutor, you would live with that person and they would educate you on, um, you know, philosophy and religion and um, science and mathematics, you know, because teachers back then were more well-rounded and were able to focus on many different subjects. So he went to live with this professor and this professor was an atheist. So you've got to picture young Lewis, you know, entering his, you know, mid uh, teenage years, mid to late teenage years, um, meeting this man who is an absolute genius by all accounts and basically rejecting God, rejecting everything that, you know, Lewis thought was, um, you know, all the ideas that Lewis kind of, if he had held on to any of those ideas of, you know, being a Christian or God, um, you know, he had certainly demolished those when meeting this man. And um, then he was conscripted to uh, the war, you know, World War One broke out. Hey, before you go further, let yeah. me step in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and tell the listeners that uh, in, in this podcast, this is mainly Nathan talking tonight. This is his field. Like I've, re- I, I went through a C.S. Lewis phase and a J.R.R. Tolkien phase. It was forty years ago. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I have fond memories. We read a lot to our kids. It was really great. But but you're a guy who's really up on this. 
Um, I'm just kind of looking at a Wikipedia article quickly, and I wanted to add one thing to what you were just saying. Yeah, absolutely. Just off the top of your head. When he became an atheist, it says here he, he became interested in mythology and the occult. Yeah, and that was pretty common during that time because um, different governments during this time, World War One and World War Two, were actually – um, you know, this was just a time frame that people were getting more involved in the occult. Um, and so, hmm. you know, it's fascinating that you bring that up. Uh, and you actually will see some of that in Lewis's writings, um, both in his uh, pre-Christian writings and, and those that came afterwards. Um, so, no, thanks. Thank you for uh, for bringing that up. That's Yeah, definitely. So going into the war, um, you know, it's been said, you know, that there are no atheists in foxholes, but Lewis kind of dug his heels in and he was convinced that, you know, if, if he truly believed God wasn't real, then he wasn't going to cry out to him in a time of need. Um, so he really had an opposite adverse reaction to, uh, what typically happens to people. You know, you go off and you see the tragedy and you see the horror and you're in the middle of a no-win situation. And so, you know, the, the typical response is, oh God, if you get me out of here, I will do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he just had, you know, such an opposite reaction and pushed against that. Um, but uh, clearly God had uh, other plans for him. And so he came back to England and... um enrolled in now i cannot remember um and steve maybe with the wikipedia article there is it um, cambridge or oxford that he it was oxford it was oxford okay yeah he returned to oxford right after war by the way also in this article uh in 1918 april 15th of 1918 uh lewis was wounded in world war one and two of his colleagues nearby him were killed by a british shell Mm. falling short of its target. So friendly fire, he was wounded, two other guys died. And this led to a lot of depression and homesickness and stuff of that nature in his life. Then he, the war ended, he returned to Oxford. Take it up there. Yeah. So he returns to Oxford and he starts studying and um, lo and behold, Lewis is now struggling to find um, intelligent atheists that he can hang around. It seemed like the people he was actually gathering around and really becoming fascinated with and really um, taking a hold of, you know, from an intellectual standpoint were Christians. And one of those was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, And so Tolkien starts essentially challenging Lewis and out of Lewis's love of mythology, um, you know, going back to ancient mythology, working all the way up to, you know, uh, Greek and Roman, uh, what we would consider at that point, you know, some of the more modern day mythology, um, you know, Tolkien was really able to appeal to Lewis on those grounds. And again, one of the, the major arguments that he used was, you know, convincing Lewis about that idea that, you know, we we see these myths coming out in history. And he said, what if at one time the myth actually happened mm. and it came in the form of Jesus Christ? He comes mm. down from heaven, takes on a human form, and he dies for humanity, saving them from their sins. And now, I mean, I think it's important at this point to uh, note that even Lewis would admit that, you know, through all of this, he is struggling. He is fighting against this. Um, You know, he was um, 
I think I believe um, I remember reading in um, one of uh, the biographies that uh, or autobiographies um, I can't remember which one that uh, he said you know he came to Christianity reluctantly. It yeah, let me read you a little more right there. Yeah, absolutely. So it says Lewis vigorously resisted conversion, noting that he was brought into Christianity like a prodigal. Now here's a quote. Here's how he was brought into Christianity, quote, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the typical conversion experience, is it? No, man, the hounds of heaven had him treed, and he wanted out of the tree. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think, you know, I love that story because I think so many times we feel like, you know, a person's conversion has to be like this sweet, awesome experience where they come and you know, the, you know, light shines on them and the heavenly choruses start singing and, (laughs) you know, everything's all great. And I think, you know, this is, you got to remember that, you know, the conversion to Christianity, once you embrace it is a great thing. But before that point, I mean, your sin nature is just fighting that tooth and nail (laughs) and doesn't want to give into it. Everything about Christ is, you know, just repulsive, Um, if, you know, if Christ isn't repulsive, then everything about Christians and the Christian faith becomes, you know, so, you know, I really, I think that that's a great description of his idea of coming to faith because it just shows the reality that not everybody comes, you know, in this sweet, you know, harmonious moment. And it's like, oh, this is so wonderful. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Here's, here's a little detail too. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Lewis said that. Um, you know, he'd been thinking about the faith obviously for a while, but he was actually converted. Like he made his commitment to Christ, opened his heart to Christ, however you want to put it, mm-hmm. uh, while he was on the way to the zoo with his brother. Oh, interesting. Isn't that and, funny how your know, stuff's been percolating in your heart and in the back of your mind? Yeah. And then you're on your way to the zoo and Christ arrests you and calls yes. you to himself. Pretty now, crazy. I think um, if I remember correctly, and maybe Steve, you can confirm this, but his brother, uh, Warney, was actually a believer. He was in the military as well. I think he was a um, I think he was an officer. He went in as an officer, um, came through the war as well. Um, but he, from what I remember and understand, actually maintained um, his faith from growing up and was another one who was instrumental in um, him coming to Christ. Yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just just fascinating how, you know, God worked everything together. Um, so he comes out and he thinks, you know, Christians are stupid. There's no one intelligent around him. And the people that he's drawn to, the people who are giving him the most intellectual, challenging um, discussions are believers. Uh, one of them being his brother, one of them being J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and, you know, eventually he surrenders and... Uh, you know, these two Oxford Dons uh, come together and they form this group called the Inklings. Um, And so this was, you know, just a time where uh, everyone could get together and, you know, these, these guys would hang out at the local pub, uh, drinking beer, smoking their cigars, smoking their pipes. pipes. Yeah, that's right. And then um, reading these stories that they've been working on. Um, you know, and so out of these meetings was birthed, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia, all these great works that we have from these people. Um, so, you know, just kind of fascinating background and backstory to all of this, um, Mm. going into it. And again, out of this was just birthed this concept that has been carried on through the years of, 
uh, Christ as the true myth. And what I, what I want to do real quick is just read a uh, definition of what a myth is. So that way we understand one of the things that um, both my wife and I have done over the years to our students is we love to tell them that many of the biblical stories are actually myths. And they kind of freak out a little bit. Well, what do you mean? It's like, well, look, I mean, this is what the definition of a myth is. This falls under that definition. We as believers, as Christians, think that they are true myths. Um, So let me just give you that definition real quick. Uh, A myth is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. Hmm. Um, So, you know, just... Plain and simply, you know, it's a it's a story that is passed down. Uh, it concerns the history of a people. It explains natural or social ev- phenomenon, and it involves supernatural beings or supernatural events. I mean, I don't know about you, but the reality is when I read that definition and I look at the Bible, that's like 90% of the Bible right there. That fits, doesn't it? Yeah. And you said, you know, th- these are myths we believe, uh, which... Um Typically, we think of a myth as something that you don't really believe. It's just a story people told to explain a phenomenon. But Correct. I guess the other definition, or actually the more realistic definition is, no, it's whether you believe it or not, Right. it's uh, a story of, about the history of a people. Correct. And that is the, the stepping stone that Tolkien used in order to um, really just kind of bounce off and, um, you know, get to uh, Lewis. And so... I have um, I actually have this article here. Um, believe it or not, I actually did a little bit of preparing for this one. Um, yeah, it kind of it calls for it. <laughs> um, but this is um, from Eric uh, Metaxas. Are you familiar with him, Steve? I'm not. Um, Eric Metaxas is a great um, autobiographer. Um, he's written um, several on uh, Luther, or he's written one on Luther. He's written one on. Um, uh, uh, now I'm not going to remember his name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and several others, but he's just very meticulous, very detailed in his work and research. Um, and he found an article that he posted on his website that I really like. And the title of this article is how J.R. Tolkien helped to lead C.S. Lewis, uh, to faith. And I just want to read a little bit, um, from this because I think this really sums up, um, such a well, uh, well, it's, it's not only just a well-written article, but it really sums up uh, the relationship that they had and the means that Tolkien used to um, sway Lewis in his arguments. Um, and so it starts off, until I was an adult who had found faith in this world of meaning, I knew very little about C.S. Lewis. He was the Oxford Don who turned from atheism to belief in God because late one night in 1930, he was walking al- along a wooded path behind Magdalen College with his friend J.R. Tolkien. This was years before Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings and long before Lewis wrote his famous Chronicles of Narnia. They were just young men who had survived a grim hor- the grim horrors of World War I, who had seen the ghastly hell and death of the trenches and of the gas warfare, and who were now brilliant young professors at Oxford University. But as they walked and talked along that path, long, long past midnight, Tolkien had the had the grounding of a deep belief in something else, and Lewis did not. Tolkien felt that his world was not at all that was not all there is, but Lewis felt that it was. 
<laughs> that the sad horrors of the war they had both survived told them this, that this ugly world was all there is ever would be and we must face this, although it made us sad to think of. But surely Lewis, or Jack as his friends called him, sometimes wondered why. If it were true, if it would make us sad, if it were true, why would something in us want it not to be true? What was that something yeah. in us and how did it get there? What was the meaning of the fact that we should desire something else? What was the meaning of our desire for meaning? And I'm just going to pause there for a second because um, to me, that is just such – that is the essence of getting to someone in apologetics because we all have mm. that feeling and that longing that this world is not what it should be. Mm. Um, your, I mean your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, um, part of the process of maturing is figuring out what the world really is, what the world's really like, becoming an adult, figuring out what the world's like. Uh, a lot of times kids are raised in kind of a bubble where they believe everybody's good. Yeah. And then yeah. they go to college and they want certain political positions and world political positions because they're believing everybody's good. Um, they need to be a Navy SEAL for a couple years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like out on the edge of civilization where Navy SEALs and others are are fighting battles and killing our enemies so that we can live in this little bubble where it seems like everybody's good. But, um, yeah, finding out what a place the world is. And it's not just the world out there. It's the world in here, inside of me. Yes. Uh, it's very important that our, our kids grow up and that, that youth in the nation grow up to realize um, there's a tremendous potential for evil inside of me. Yes. Just as there's also a tremendous potential for good. And depending on this, that, or the other, I can go either way. Mm-hmm. And I've got to make sure I channel it all in, in a responsible way uh, and use the impulses in me to go in a good way, in a productive way, in a useful way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, young people need to grow up and figure out what is the world really like. And I think we're not doing very well at that nowadays. But something like experiencing a world war would really help. Yeah, you know, and I mean, not to get too sidetracked, and maybe we can do uh, one on this someday as well, but I recently read a book called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, and it was just basically a commentary about... um, uh, That's not very high off the ground. No, it's not. Um, But it was a commentary on, uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's works, The Lord of the Rings, and things like that. And one of the conclusions that the author came to is, you know, some of the problems that we're facing today with uh, younger people and apathy and things like that is we have lost the art of telling them stories and giving them stories with heroes and virtue. And, um, you know, and, and Steve, I know that you agree with me that, you know, the, the only changing power in a person's life is the redemptive work of the cross. But I think there's something to be said for um, even someone who's not a believer training them and teaching them the importance of virtue the importance of right and wrong and fighting against evil um, and, and clearly defining evil because when you start mucking it up uh, and you start losing that clear definition, um, then you start slipping into this relative morality and, well, what is really wrong and what is really right? And um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, uh, you, you, as much as we should teach virtue, as you were saying, and character and all that, uh, part of teaching that, I think, is uh, teaching them to understand 
also what is the evil in the world. Like, for example, yeah. when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. I somehow came across in a used bookstore the three volumes by Solzhenitsyn called the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, and okay. uh, they interested me, and I bought them. They were really cheap. And I went home, and I read all the way through all three volumes, like, in a row. Wow. And I, I, you know, this is an overstatement, but it should be required reading for every young person growing up mm. in, in our culture so that they will have some kind of an understanding of the potential for evil mm. in the world and therefore the need for virtue and character and strength and, mm. and so on, like you're talking about. Uh, we ought to be well acquainted with, and not many students are anymore, yeah. we ought to be well acquainted with what happened under the Nazi Holocaust. Yes, and know what that was really like. We ought to be acquainted with um, uh, how uh, some of the Chinese leaders treated their people back when mm. um, so that we understand human nature. But, yeah, we really want to grow into virtue. Yeah. And we'll uh, – you know, I, that – that's it, Steve. We we've decided we're gonna we're gonna do a podcast on that topic, the importance of virtue in in culture and society. So we'll oh, that uh, sounds cool. We'll do that as another podcast. Um, yeah. One, hey, while we're on this, yeah, absolutely. Let me just let me take a moment and say uh, it's interesting how uh, my dad's life intersects a little bit with this time that we're talking about, where C.S. Lewis lived and yeah, went to that's World right. War One and so on, and then the World War Two came. We kind of skipped over World War Two. Lewis uh, wanted to get back in the military, mm-hmm. but he was not allowed to. I guess due to his age, he was like forty when the war started. Yeah, so he became a leader of the Home Guard. Yes, in Oxford, the Home yes. Guard. That's like you know, men get to march around a little bit and wear uniforms. That's but right. anyway. Um, <laughs> But my dad was born and raised in England near Coventry, which is the industrial center of the country. Yes. And, and Germans, Germany was bombing the heck out of Coventry because that's where all the war machinery was being made. So to get to Coventry, their, their planes would pass over Dunedin, the small town where my father lived. It was like eight miles south of Coventry. Mm. Incidentally, my dad during the war was too young for active service, but he was in the Royal Navy and would ride his bicycle those eight miles into town and work on the Sea Fire, which was the aircraft carrier version of the Spitfire. Wow. But anyway, um, here's the thing I wanted to get to. So a lot of times bombs would be dropped on Neneaton, either because, I don't know, somebody made a mistake, or my dad thinks it's because they chickened out and they didn't want to face all the anti-aircraft fire right. up there in, in, in Coventry, so they dropped their bombs in the neat and turned around and got out of there. Anyway, his <laughs> town got bombed a lot, and they had a bomb shelter in their backyard. I've been in that backyard. I've been in the house he was born and raised in. Really? And, uh, they, were, they had this bomb shelter, so that you know the sirens would sound. They'd have to go out and get their bomb shelter. And then afterward... His parents, my dad's parents, would say to him, you know, now, Ray, go around and check and see if so-and-so is okay. Like the uncle over here and the cousin over there. And one time he went over to check on the uncle and uh, his family, and the house was not there. Wow. It was gone. But they had not been in it. They were somewhere else in a shelter. And so they came to live with my dad and his whole family in their little two-bedroom townhouse till the war was over. So... uh Wow. Interesting. I have some family history back in those days, and it was, you know, it was because of Nazi evil, man. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I remember you you talking about that, um, and I remember specifically, uh, you know, um, talking about that with uh, Dunkirk when the movie Dunkirk came out. You were telling me about oh, that okay. history uh-huh. there. 
Um, so that's that's really cool. And yeah, I mean, actually, it, it's during World War II um, when Lewis uh, became this. Um, he he not only you know was like this house guard that you were talking about, but he also took people in. So he had a house. He and his brother had a house up north, away from where the bombings and things were going on in the country. And so he and his brother took in children from uh, you know who were displaced from their families during this time during this bombing, and that was actually having these children kind of run around his house and drive him a little bit crazy is what formulated the first works of Narnia in his mind. That Lion, the Witch, mm-hmm. and the Wardrobe scene that opens with the bombings and the children coming to uh, live with yeah. a professor and yeah. all that stuff is, is you know, a little um, a little bit of his story in some ways. Yeah, and it was also during the World War II uh, when he was part of the local home guard in Oxford, that he started speaking a lot on religious programs broadcast mm-hmm. by the BBC. Yes. And so, you know, the, during the time of air raids and uh, rationing and all that stuff, he'd come on with these broadcasts and a, um, a chief, mar- an air chief marshal wrote, uh, quote, the war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe, Lewis provided just that. Wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. And that's actually um, first when uh, the uh, Mere Christianity was released. It was actually a series of radio programs that was done um, on the British Airways and then was later um, transcripted into uh, the book that we read. And he actually acknowledges that um, in the beginning of mere Christianity. So, uh, it's kind of neat that that first aired as a British, uh, broadcast. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so just going to read a little bit more and then want to dive more into, um, you know, this idea. It actually has been turning into, uh, you know, history of Lewis and Tolkien, but I think it's so important to set this up to understand where we get this idea, why I keep talking about it on air, Um, So just read a little bit more here. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien both knew and loved mythology and the myths of ancient cultures. They knew the old stories of the Greeks and the Romans, and they knew and loved the stories of the Norse gods. In his autobiographical memoir, Surprised by Joy, Lewis recalled how his heart had been pierced when he had read those lines from the Norse ballads of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard a voice cry, Balder, the beautiful is dead, is dead. Why had this so pierced his heart? Why should this... Uh, 19th century poem about a fictional character move him so. What was the meaning of that? But after the death of his mother and the pains of life and the horrors of the war, he had he had at least halfway pushed aside such feelings and had come to embrace the sad belief that we could not go back and all of these stories were just stories. Beautiful stories, but just stories. But Tolkien had another idea, although for him it was no longer just an idea. He knew that all of these ancient and beautiful stories were echoes of something larger and truer. They were signs that the human race knew of another world that had once existed and would exist again and even now exist in another realm outside of time. He knew the myths of the gods who died in sacrificial way but who would rise again and live, but he did not know them as unconnected to the world of reality and history. For him, they were echoes of a larger reality that had a one time burst through into history, but once only. Hmm. Um, awesome. Yeah. And it is just, it is so, um, so good because this is the idea 
that has just so captivated me, and, and I bring it up consistently on the podcast, that I believe that God is Lord of all, and he is Lord of the imagination. He is Lord of um, every person, whether or not people acknowledge him as Lord at this present time. We're told that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so while I believe that um, God is Lord of each individual, I believe he is Lord of the imagination. And so going all the way back to these ancient myths, I believe God was implanting um, a remnant of his common grace to people. That while people who couldn't truly appreciate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still had an idea of virtue. They still had an idea of what was right and what was wrong. And so they created these heroes to to rise up and protect them and save them, albeit flawed heroes. But again, as as Tolkien puts out, that there would be one that would come who would enter the world as the true hero, as the true myth, to finally save everyone from themselves, from the sin of the world, um, and and usher in peace between them and God. Um, and I just I love that idea that you know what God isn't just God over um, what we see and perceive in the reality. He is also God of um, of myth. You know, that he has infused himself, that you can't get away from his perfect nature. Um, the only problem is, is that outside of Christ, we can't understand his perfect nature. So all of these heroes are flawed. They all have some, you know, some measure of humanity in them because they could not hang their hats on, uh, you know, the perfect God. Um, and Christ comes into the world and shows us who he is. He shows us who God is. And says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Not just to the Jews who received the prophecies um, that God gave them directly, but I believe also to you know the Greeks and the Romans, to going all the way back to the Mesopotamians, who you know were getting glimpses. Um, again, God's common grace, showing them glimpses that you know what there is a Savior who is coming. Yeah, how about those Magi? Yeah, where they come from, Persia, all the way from Persia, yep. I believe, and uh, you know that they were expecting yes. something, and they saw it in the stars and came to see Christ. So yeah, even the, even the Gentile world um, was maybe directed in some ways by myth yes. to find Christ. So so has this led you to read some of the great pieces of? non-Christian mythology? Are you familiar with some of them? I am, yeah. Actually, um, I remember studying them in uh, in high school, uh, actually starting all the way back in middle school and just being fascinated with the myths, you know, going all the way back to um, the Egyptian mythologies, um, you know, of, of the gods of, uh, of Egypt and then, you know, kind of the, the more modern uptakes of the Greeks and the Romans, um, and, and really even following that thread to what I would say are modern day myths in superheroes. Yeah. And probably not just superheroes, probably you know, all kinds of people in movies we watch or TV series that we watch could be considered to be like a deliverer. They're like the Christ figure in the story. It's a battle of good against evil. and The good guy wins out in the end. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a theme that we can't get away from in this universe because it is the theme of the universe, huh? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what is 
like I said, I mean, I keep using that word, but it's so true. That's what's captivated me about this is that, you know, God isn't just God of the the world that we see, the physical world. He is also God of the mind, God of the imagination. And so um, why wouldn't he um, infuse people with his common grace to point to who Christ truly is? And to point to, again, you know, using that term, the true myth of Jesus, you know, that, wait, 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 you know, all these, all these heroes that were written about in the past, you know, all of these um, people, you know, these heroes that are written about in the present and then in the future to come, they're all pointing to, they're all flawed in some way, they're all missing something. But then we get a hero in Jesus Christ who's not missing anything. He's the hero of the heroes. Yes, yes. <laughs> um and the others are flawed to one degree or another. Um, most of them, well, what would you say? You're more familiar with me. Terribly flawed or? I, I mean, I think, I think to different degrees. I mean, essentially, when you look at, you know, all these different Greek gods and demigods and things like that, to one degree or another, they're very human-like. Some of them are more moral than others. Some of them are less moral than others. Um, but they're all they're all flawed people. They're, they're basically people with superpowers is what it boils down to. Mm, yeah, you know, that's right, isn't it? When you look at, um, you know, particularly when you look at the Greeks and the Romans and you look at their heroes, you know, you look at Hercules and Zeus and all the different gods, you know. Yeah, some of them, they're, they're more benevolent. You know, Prometheus tries to, um, you know, give fire to the people. But, you know, Prometheus has his issues that he goes through. You know, Zeus at different times comes in and champions the people. But, you know, Zeus is a horrible womanizer um you know so when we look at these these myths uh mythological uh beings mythological creatures um and we see man you know they they've almost got it i mean they they would be the perfect savior if they would be the perfect mm-hmm. savior if mm-hmm. you know um but they're always they're always lacking some quality and i believe that that is due to the fact that we as people cannot separate um ourselves from sin and so there's yeah. always going to be that and that's why when christ comes you see a perfect hero perfectly laying down his life um and perfectly rising from the dead because because we can't write anything like that. Mm. Everything we try to write comes out, you know, even if I were, I believe, even if I were to, as a Christian, try to write the perfect character, the perfect hero, he would come off sounding pretentious or, or preachy. There, there would be a, a, a thread of um, arrogance in him because I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, you know, a few minutes ago you mentioned uh, the the term common grace, mm-hmm. and uh, these these myths, these stories can be useful to us because God in common grace is allowing people to pen some of the truth and so on. I would like to take that opportunity, that, since you mentioned that, yeah. to put in a, a plug for the Reformed doctrine, and I think it's largely only found among Reformed people, the Reformed doctrine of common grace. Like, I never even heard of common grace until I became a Reformed guy, until I started reading Reformed people. Prior to that, like, especially if you go all the way back to my Bible college days, 
very dispensational. Uh, the world is just a, you know, a bad place and going from worse to worse. Yeah. And we're just trying to get souls out of here and there's nothing good in this world and there's nothing good in unbelievers. They can't do anything good. There, there's nothing, uh, of worth in them. I don't know how we believe that, but we did. <laughs> um, but man, the doctrine of common grace explains so much yeah. and gives you an appreciation for so much that you wouldn't otherwise have. I, I think people really need to be exposed to good doses of common grace to make sense of the world yeah. and to be able to appreciate what those folks are doing over there and why that's of value and why that's of worth, even though they're not believers. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. I agree 100%. I mean, and Paul even talks about as much in Romans, you know, for though they knew God, they didn't glorify and worship him as God, you know? Um, and so, you know, we have this, we do have this thread all throughout history that God has given a level of grace. Some of that is special revealed grace. You know, he comes directly to Abraham, calls Abraham out of Ur, out of a life of idolatry. You know, just, you know, basically a smack in the head. Hey, you're, you're done with this. You're going to come and follow me. Um, but others, you know, it, it's more it's more subtle to a certain extent. You know, you think about uh, Rahab. You know, mm-hmm. Rahab, we're not, we're not told that she received any clear vision from God. It was just she knew that her people were in the wrong, and she knew that the people of Israel were in the right, and she wanted to be on the right side. She chose sides. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I think, I, I think we have those threads that are linked all throughout scripture as well. You know, it's not kind of just this empty theoretical thing. No, we, we see God's grace permeating throughout scripture. And we know that, um, you know, that's again, going back to Romans, that's one of the arguments that Paul uses in Romans to condemn the world of their sin, that even the people who don't know God are still held accountable because they, they see the glory of God all throughout right. nature, and they have God's law written on their hearts. And they are without excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned modern-day superheroes. Yeah. And and you are way more up <laughs> on them than I am. But you'll be happy to know, by the way, yes. that uh, Debbie and I recently watched the, I don't even know when it came out, I think it's fairly new, the new Wonder Woman. Yes. Yes. What did you and, think? Oh, I really enjoyed it. Yes. I was yes. surprised, you know. I kind of went in, like Lewis went into the faith, kicking That's, and screaming and dragging it. my feet and reluctantly and all that. But, uh, you know, I wanted to sit with my babe and watch the show, and she yeah. wanted to see it. So we watched it. Um, it's pretty awesome. Yes. You you agree? Oh, yes, I do. Absolutely. You know, Greg and I talked a little bit about this. Uh, Gail Goddard, who plays Wonder Woman, um, actually did her two-year military service with um, – Israel. So, you know, over there, they actually are, you know, they actually are required to do that. Um, but at the time she was a, um, she was an actress, um, slash, you know, kind of an upcoming model actress. And Hmm. she didn't know if she wanted to pursue that career though. So she actually decided to do her two year service in the military. So, you know, she like, after reading that, I had a little, you know, a little bit more respect Respect. for her and absolutely. (laughs) So, Uh um, yeah, so you know, Wonder Woman. I just I, I thought that was a great example. Again, looking at um, looking at a character, you have Wonder Woman, you have Superman, Batman. Um, you know, on the DC side, you know they're coming out with all their other ones. You have Marvel that's got you know. I think my wife and I were counting over twenty superhero characters in the Marvel universe that's coming out. Wow. Um, huh. 
but even in every one of those characters, you look at them and it's like, you know, as, as a Christian, as someone who knows the true hero, the true myth of the story, there's always something that's in those shows that's in those heroes that I kind of cringe at. And I'm like, Oh, they still have their marks of fallenness. Yes. Yes. What do you, mm. what do you think? Well, like take Wonder Woman, for example, what would, what would that be in her? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, I think to a certain extent there's, um, there's a touch of arrogance that's there, uh, you know, that she's huh. lived this kind of sheltered, concealed life. And uh-huh. she's not willing to listen to what's actually going on in the world uh, and, yeah. you know, take advice of, you know, a man, <laughs> um, you know. And so I think I think there is a touch of arrogance that's going on there, you know, and I think that's pointed out like, you know, uh, she has that statement. You know, there's that scene going on between her and Steve toward the end of the movie where you know, she, she believes she's killed Ares and why aren't they stop fighting, you know, but, mm-hmm. but what he says is so true. You know, there's not one person to blame, you mm. know, there's not one person that you can point your finger at and say, it's their fault. Yeah. You and know? if we, st- if we kill them, it'll all stop. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a race. Yeah. It's a fallen race. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, but I, so yeah, go ahead. Um, besides modern day, American culture superheroes mm-hmm. are are there other myths in our day that would be good pictures of Christ do you are you aware of any yeah i mean i think I think looking at um television shows or looking at uh movies that have a a hero protagonist you know mm-hmm. that hero sees an injustice done they see a wrong done, uh-huh. and they're the ones that can step in and save it. Um, you know, I, I think of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, um, called Equilibrium. Um, it's with, I don't think so. Okay. It's with Christian Bale. It takes place in a uh, dystopian world where, uh, in the future, b- people are basically drugged to suppress their feeling because from mm. feelings come, you know, yeah, you have the good, you have the love and, you know, the joy and all that, but from that can come the jealousy and from you know the hate and all of that. So they just suppress feelings altogether. And you have this one, uh, basically soldier uh, in this world who sees the wrong and the injustice done. He breaks free of the medicine, um, and he is bound and determined to help others break free of it as well. Hmm. Um, so how how about uh, Neo in the Matrix? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the the Wachowski siblings, as they're now called, you know, former brothers, now siblings, um, are, you know, said as much that they drew from these concepts of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, to set up this hero, this savior, this chosen one who could come out and, you know, defeat the evil that was going on within their world, within their universe, Mm -hmm. Um, all right. So here's another one. Uh, you seen, have you seen John wick one and two? You know, I have not seen those, but I am familiar with them. You're familiar with them. Yes. All right. So, you know, he, he was a retired though. He's young retired yeah. hitman. Yeah. Apparently he was like the most world-class, amazing, incredible hitman on the planet. Um, but he, he, he quit it, but then some bad things happened that made him angry. Right. And he, he went to get even, and really, you know, even though he was a hitman, 
he's like the hero of the whole story. You love him because he's the one administering justice. Yeah. And he's doing it in very manly and powerful ways. So sure. You like him. Does that qualify or is he disqualified because, after all, he was a hitman? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because I, um, I, you know, I think there there's two sides to this. I think the first side is we have a sense of reality and the justice of reality, but then there's the sense of movie justice. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where this, this is the hero and, you know, he had a job to do. He was doing his job, you know, whatever those means were. Um, mm-hmm. But there was there was a an ethics code. There was a, there was a, a line that he wouldn't cross. You know, there were boundaries he wouldn't go over. Um, mm-hmm. I think on a similar note, did you ever see the replacement killers with Chow Young Fat years ago? Have not. Similar. Nathan, you you have seen and are conversant <laughs> about a, a gajillion shows that I've never even heard of. I, I think you would enjoy the replacement killers because. Um, mm. In in that show, um, he is uh, he's a, a, again he's an assassin. He's been sent to uh, do a job. This is kind of a spoiler alert. I mean, the movie came out. I think it was back in like ninety seven or ninety eight, something like that. I'm check so, it out. Um, but you know, essentially, he's gone to do a job, and basically, when he goes to the do do the job, he's like, you know, I can't do this. This is this is pushing me. This is the line that I won't cross. You know, mm-hmm. there is. That, that hero, even though he's he's maybe what we would consider an anti-hero, that hero has a sense of justice in his life. He has a sense of right and wrong. There's a boundary and a line he won't cross. And I think I think those are the things that make a hero. You know, yeah, there's a there's a lot of gray areas for these people. Um, you know, I mean, I think to a certain extent, if I were if I were to be honest, um, if I were put in situations like that, there would probably be a lot of gray areas for me too. You know. Mm. I mean, yeah. what, you know, what does the Bible say about being, you know, a hitman? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I think to go even further, you know, we could kind of ask ourselves, well, what if, what if I was a hitman working for the government? You know, I mean, forget yeah, like that's a, a Navy a, SEAL. Yeah. I mean, forget, yeah. a, you know, a mercenary hitman, but a hitman working for the government, yeah. you know, but there, um, you know, Romans 13, God's given the government. Sure. The sword, so sure. But if so I, that's legal, but if, but if I'm a hitman working for a government, you know, that, that allows private hitmen to be hired out, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, so, ah, I, okay. that's you right. know, so I think, yeah. you know, I think that there are certain things where it's like, you know, you have a clear sense of what's right and what's wrong, but you know, and there, and you know, again, we talk about violating the conscience, you know, what is, you know, at some point, you know, the conscience of this person is being violated and they're not going to cross that line. And mm-hmm. so they are the hero because they have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And they're not going to break over that line into <laughs> doing what is violating their conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, I think that's something, you know, to keep in mind. I mean, I think it's a different story if we're talking about real life and the reality of it, you know, you're a hitman working for a private organization, not sanctioned by the government. Okay. What you do is wrong. Um, <laughs> But, you know, let's let's put that into the realm of movies, okay? You're a hitman working for a private organization, but you're a good guy doing – In the good, movie. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. doing – and you're – and what you're doing is, you know, you are acting – basically, you are ex, uh, expending justice on yes. people. You know, on you're not – bad people who yeah, deserved it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I think I think there is to a certain extent even in that where we can see – there is a sense of, of common grace in that hero, you know, where God's, 
where God's grace has abounded because it's not like they're just lawlessly going out and exterminating people, you know, or, or, um, unjudiciously, you know, there, there is a sense of, no, 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 this is justice. This is deserved. And now, um, yeah, go ahead. So looping back to something we were talking about much earlier in tonight's podcast. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about, it's important to know, uh, that the world is an evil place. Yes. It's important to understand the nature of evil and to what extent the world really is a bad place. And also to know where, where there's good and what virtue is and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I've come to believe, and I wonder what you think of this, mm-hmm. that um, obviously we all we all understand there are different temperaments. Sure. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe sure. it's genetic plus early experiences, whatever it is, but there are different temperaments. Yeah. And I believe you could – this is a rarer one, but you could identify what I'll call a warrior mm-hmm. temperament. Sure. That is, uh, uh, lots of guys who are in the Navy SEALs. Yeah. Uh, you know, who are killing machines, right? Sure, yeah. And, and I'm glad they're there. I'm all for them. Sure. But, um, uh, a lot of those guys, when when they were young, knew they wanted to be a warrior. Mm. They knew they wanted to be a commando. They yeah. knew they wanted to uh, be authorized to get guns and shoot people. Sure. As a young person, I want to shoot people. Right. I, want to, you know, I want to kill our enemies. I want to so, do that. The, here's the thing. Yeah. When you have that temperament, yeah. You've got to channel it because you could yeah. also you could also the very same temperament channeled in a different direction yeah. makes you a hitman. Yeah. Right? Or a serial it's the killer. Same urge. It's the <laughs> yeah. same desire. It's the same lifestyle that you want. I yeah. want to take guns and shoot people. Yeah. So you can either become the evil side of that or the good and the really just side of that. Yes. But it's the same person and there's a fine line that's gonna push them one way or the other somewhere in their life. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you one hundred percent, you know, because I've often thought about this concept. I, I struggle with I struggle with the nature of this because uh, you know, as you know, Steve, and I've said this before, I've I mean, I'm coming up on, um, it'll be 30, it'll be 33 years this coming spring that I'll have trained in martial arts. 33 wow. years. That is a long yeah. time, brother. That's yeah. just a good reminder for me to be nice to you. <laughs> well, and, but here's the thing is that I've never, there are some people who love the thrill of the fight. You know, I was watching UFC with my brother-in-law the other day, and and it's funny because I was sitting there. He was like, okay, you know, if we were betting, who would your money be on? And And I was like, look, here's the deal. If you give me like 30 seconds, I can tell you who I think is really going to win this fight, but I need huh. to see them fight first. Because you've like, seen enough fighting to know. See, right, what's going yeah. on. Um, I did huh. a little bit of fighting like that at one point. The problem is once I get to know someone – I don't have the drive in me to beat them to a point. You don't want to hurt them, huh? Yeah, exactly. And that's just – that's who I am. I don't have that instinct where it's like, hey, I'm going in. This is a sport and I'm just going to beat the tar out of you in the name of good, clean fun. It's like, no, I mean I have a pretty good knowledge of what I can do and how I can hurt someone and I I don't want to – do that to people that I like, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the thing with fighting like that is you get, you get to know the group of people who are fighting really quick, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you uh, see, all yeah. the, you know, you see all the trash talking and things like that, but uh-huh. you know, at the end of the day, it's a show, it's a sport, you know, they're having a good time. Um, mm-hmm. and so I could never get into that type of, of situation. You know, I, I would consider myself somebody who could be a warrior if I had to, 
But in the context of a friendly match like that, I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself. Same here. To I could that. either. Not in a friendly match. Yeah. I don't want to hurt a guy that I like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You but, know? I, but you know, if I had to hurt somebody who's bad and needs right. to be hurt, I wouldn't hesitate. Right. And I think, you know, I think that's the thing is, you know, when we look at that, you know, I could spar to a certain level. You know, and I, and I did sparring to a certain level, but usually it was to it was to my detriment because I was never going to push myself mm. beyond a certain point. You know, you wouldn't go past that line. Exactly. Mm. You know, and I think okay, I'll remember that. Maybe I can get in trouble <laughs> with you. You won't hurt me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I, but I think that's important to remember and understand is you know that that I think that there are guys who are wired to enjoy the thrill of the sport in in that you know and i don't necessarily think that there's anything particularly wrong with that i think if you channel that in the right way that's um, the same thing you yep. know you, you take that in a bad way and exactly. got in a lot of bar fights and hurt a lot of people exactly you can channel it in a productive way and make millions being a that's right ufc fighter that's right you know and so i think i think there are these lines within excuse me within um being a warrior as well, you know, because like I said, I think, I think I would consider myself the type of person who, you know, just the idea, you know, the virtue, the, the, uh, heroism, the, you know, all those things that are involved in being a warrior and, and defending those who cannot defend themselves. You know, I mean, I remember mm-hmm. a story about, um, mm-hmm. a friend of mine who, um, you know, and he was a friend of mine, but he was getting a little too big for his britches and he was picking on some underclassmen. And, um, you know, I, I just, I remember coming to the aid of those underclassmen and, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I basically put my friend in an arm bar and whatever. And he was like, but Nathan, what would Jesus do? And I just looked at him and I was <laughs> like, vengeance you. is mine, says the <laughs> Lord. <laughs> you know, um, uh-huh. but you know, so- I, I can't stand to see, um, someone who is being picked on, you know, to yeah, me, same. that's a warrior. Oh, I, can't, yeah. I can't stand Makes me righteously indignant. Yeah. 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 And I want to hurt somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, the, the superheroes yeah. of our day, the ones we were talking about, um, most of them would be qualify as warriors, wouldn't they? They're warriors. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. They're, they're standing up for the, the injustice that's going on around them. They're, they're fighting for the little guy who can't defend themselves. And so there are even good pictures of Christ in that, aren't they? Oh yeah. Because, yeah. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, you you look at the Old Testament and and how many times? I mean, God, first of all, even choosing the nation of Israel as His nation. I mean, they're you know when He chooses them, they are not the biggest, they are not the baddest, they yeah. are not the most strong. And time yeah. and time again, God tells them, "I'm going to come in and I'm going to fight your battles." That these mm. armies that are you know going to come against you and the armies that you're going to come against they're going to be bigger than you they're going to be badder than you the only way that you are going to be able to defeat them is if i am on your side fighting this yeah. battle for you yeah don't trust in horses trust in me that's right you know and i think i think that's an excellent picture of of um the the common grace that we see in christ you know particularly i love that passage in the end of revelation where you have the risen jesus christ coming to john in a vision and he comes in all of his glory and splendor and john the apostle who who felt so close to christ that he could literally just lay his head on his chest and hug him and you know just 
have that that warmth and that intimacy with him, you know, falls down flat on his face, scared to death, literally scared mm. to death mm. of the risen, glorified Christ. Mm. And I, I love that picture um, because it really does show that Christ isn't um, isn't just the Lamb who was slain; He's also the righteous warrior. He's a warrior. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And you have He's all the above, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, you have that great picture again in Revelation where Christ is um, standing, um, standing, and the armies of the earth are gathering around against him, and all he does is call down fire on them. You know, mm. not a hesitation. You know, Satan's there with the armies ready to attack and all Christ does is call down fire. And it's like, nope, you're done. This is this is my righteous judgment coming on you. You know, for some strange reason, this reminds me of the fact that when our church changed its name from Trinity to Cornerstone recently, uh-huh. we had to come up with a new logo. So we had an artist guy that we know work up some logos and we showed them to our whole church on a Sunday morning. Here's here's three. You know, we narrowed it down to these over a process sure. of time. Then here's three. And uh, we, how many of you like number one? They'd raise their hands. How many of you like number two? And so. The one I thought they wouldn't like is the one they all liked. Really? And it's it's a rather warrior-looking um, <laughs> logo. It, it looks like – it could be like a police badge or a military badge that you wear on your arm or something. Sure. But uh, it does depict the cornerstone anyway. But the women of the church were saying you – know, I was saying, well, I thought you all would say you know, it's too warlike. And the ladies that were all saying, my God is a warrior, you know, and I don't mind having that. So really surprised me, man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think – I mean I think going back, you know, um, again, I, I, you know, I want to bring this up when we do our discussion on um, – when we do our discussion on, uh, you know, virtue that, you know um, – uh, we we were designed to to battle we were designed to battle you know whether that's physical threats or whether that's spiritual threats we were designed to battle and we were designed to go to war and um you know i i believe you know there is a time where peace will reign and we will love that but but here on earth we are we are built for battle <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Which raises an interesting question that we can't go into now. Maybe this would be a podcast one night. Is uh, so so men, manly men, real men, come into our churches? Yeah, and and you would would energize them. What would make them sign on the line? What would make them contribute? What would fire them up? What would make them want to be a part? Is if there's a war to fight? Yeah, yeah. And instead. We uh, tell them, can you can you bring cookies for the thing on Sunday? Right. Yes. We, yeah. You know, we we yeah. need to. We, we somehow we need to be wiser. Yeah. To give men wars to fight and battles to win yes. when they're serving Christ in their church. Yeah. Well, you know, and um, the um, you know, uh, we we have talked before about um the the good battle tours. Um, and you know, the people that run that, and they also run this, um, thing when we were talking with Zach Bartles, we talked about this as well, um, that there's a sub organization that literally goes into other countries and rescues, uh, rescue sex slaves, you know, Pretty and, wild. That's, and that's yeah. what they do because they believe that, you know, this is something that God has called us to do. We're, we're not working outside of the bounds of, of law because we're going into other countries to do this. Um, you know, so it's not like we're doing this um, here in the United States, engaging in these firefights on the street and things like that. You know? And it's like commandos for Christ. Isn't yeah. It? You know, and I think, um, you know, again, when we when we look at um, and we bring this all back to, you know, Christ, the true myth, we understand that there, you know, there's a time that we are 
um, silent lambs going to the slaughter. You know, I think mm-hmm. about those missionaries down in Ecuador, Meek. you know, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint yeah. and all those, you know, um, you saw it in the movie, um, at the end of the spear, uh, where Nate Saint's talking to his son and his son asks, you know, if you have to, will you use your gun? And he said, mm. no, I won't no. because these people don't know Jesus and we mm. do. Um, yeah. you know, and so they had awesome. every means and every, you know, ability to defend themselves and fight against mm-hmm. it, but they knew that that wasn't their purpose for going there. But I think on the other hand, you also, you know, like Christ, Christ knew that his purpose in coming the first time he came wasn't to dole out judgment. It was to be the lamb that was slain so that we all have the ability to receive Christ as our savior. So when he comes back the second time, those who have rejected him will receive their judgment. Mm. Um, you know, Powerful I, stuff, man. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, looking at Christ as the myth, I think those things touch on us, you know, that, mm. that it's not, it's, it's about the sacrificial savior, but it's also about Christ, the King, the warrior who is going to claim his prize. Mm. So sweet. Um, well, we are, uh, you know, it, it was funny because you and I were talking at the beginning of this, Steve, and we were like, <laughs> well, maybe we'll get a full 45 minutes in, maybe we won't, and, and here we are well over an hour. Um, but I, I just want to, you know, go ahead and um, give you, uh, I spent a lot of time talking on this one. I wanted to go ahead and just give you some final thoughts or words for our uh, listeners out there. Well, for the hearers to know this, Nathan told me my role in this one would be to look good <laughs> and, and, you know, to, to do what I do best, to sit here and just look really amazing. That's right. So, so that's what I've been focusing on during this podcast. I hope I've done my job well. Um, but, uh, man, uh, I'm, I'm energized by this whole conversation. I don't even know why. I've really been stirred up by this, especially on the Christ as warrior theme. Yeah. That, that really resonates with me. Um, but also like in, in modern mythology, I'm really not energized to go and read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Sure. Sorry. Sure. You would, I'm not, I'm not, you know, but, uh, when I see current movies and so on, I'm going to be thinking more in terms of, uh, how is this in a, in a fallen flawed way? How does this really foreshadow or picture for us anyway, the work of Christ, mm. Um, because there are no other themes they can invent. Yeah. Know, the, the great theme is there's good, there's evil, there's a battle, the good guy wins. Yes, yes, that's great. Awesome words, Steve. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. We just rocked the Casbah. These go to 11. <laughs>